So there's a British monk by the name of Ajahn Amaro. Some of you may know who he is. He used to be the abbot of a Bayagiri monastery here in uh, Ukiah, Northern California. Uh, this is one of his definitions of equanimity. This equanimity is the capacity to be fully open and attuned to all things, yet utterly unperturbed by their agitation. The heart is fully open to the world, yet serene and balanced. So I think one of the common critiques of Buddhism is that it makes people passive, particularly with the status quo, that this, these teachings on acceptance and equanimity um, mean that people become kind of put to sleep or uh, incapacitated in their ability to respond. And uh, this is not my understanding of the teachings. I think it's a misunderstanding and misapplication. And it's quite the opposite. That when the heart is in this particular space of openness, attunement, and non-reactivity, it actually gives us the, uh, the balance and the strength to act very decisively and skillfully. When the heart is closed, then we become numb and don't act. When the heart is open but reactive, then we act impulsively, either out of habit or reactivity, and there's less uh, likelihood that our actions will produce the desired results. So to the degree that we have established equanimity, it means that whatever happens in the moment is okay in the sense that the heart doesn't lose, um, doesn't lose its center. We don't get thrown off balance. But that doesn't mean not caring. It just means not getting caught up. It doesn't mean not responding. It means not getting spun out. Or the opposite, not getting burned out by trying to control the outcome of that which is beyond our capacity. to determine. So how does equanimity factor in terms of action, in terms of responding to the world? One of the insights that we've been exploring is this, uh, this sense of the limits of our control, that we're not in charge of the vast net of conditions, the rest of the context of life. And because of that, the results of our actions are unpredictable, because we don't control the context. So equanimity understands this and is able 
to act from a place of deep caring, clarity, intentionality, without depending on a specific outcome. That the value of our action is determined not so much by the result, but by where it's coming from inside. So from the perspective of Buddhism, uh, any action is said to have three distinct parts or phases. And so the first, as we've been exploring in the teachings on uh, karma, the first is the intention, where it's coming from inside, our motivation, the inclination of the heart that's informing the action, the qualities of the heart and mind that color or the action or that motivate us to think, speak, or act. So this is one component, the intention, where it's coming from. The next component is the relative skillfulness of the execution, which is about using our wisdom and intelligence to see what's the most helpful way to engage. How can I position myself and the conditions that are within my control so that my actions, as much as possible, have the intended outcome? So is this the right time? Is this the right place? Are there other skills or resources I need before acting? Are there other people who I need to check with or get involved? So the, the skillfulness of the execution, which means that we're taking into account as much as we can what we know of the context and our own capacities. And then the third component is the result, the outcome, which is outside of our control, precisely because there are so many other unpredictable factors. There are things we don't know. And there are unintended consequences, often, outside of our control. But if you look at that model of intention, execution, and results, the first two are within our realm of influence. And so... The teachings in Buddhism are to focus on that which we can have an effect on, to pay attention to our intention, to really look with awareness at where we're coming from, and to be honest, as honest as we can, about the different motivations that are present. And we're complicated creatures. It's rarely all one or the other. Right? It's often a mixed bag. So to be real with ourselves about that and to lean in to the skillful, healthy motivations. And then to consider to use our intelligence and our wisdom and our experience and the resources that we have access to to ensure as much as possible that the efforts and energy we're putting forward are going in the direction we intend them to. And then the rest is out of our hands. But how much of our life, how much of our sense of success or
intelligence or self-worth do we base on the outcome, on the part that's completely out of our control or mostly out of our control? So this is a, this is a quote from Thomas Merton. Trappist monk and mystic. Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. So that's the wisdom of equanimity. This recognition of what we can rely on and where to place our faith and trust in the value, the rightness, the truth of what we do. Let's see if I can find this other quote. I'll paraphrase it, is a a similar quote from Gandhi where he says that, just give it one more moment and see if it's here. He says that the success of a nonviolent campaign is not to be determined by the outcome or the result, but by the level of nonviolence that is achieved in the moment of the act, by the quality of presence and heartfulness with, with which the resistance and the act is imbued, rather than placing the, the, the measure of success on the outcome. So there's a sense here that the, the freedom, the, the, the potential of living with this understanding of equanimity is that it, it protects us from burnout. We burn out when the focus of our energy and our efforts is on the outcome, is on trying to control the external world rather than on doing the best we can with the resources we have to act in, in line with our values and in, with integrity. To see that, as Merton said, even if the results of our actions bring, even if our actions bring no result at all or even results opposite to what we expected or intended, to place that... Um, that trust and value on the inherent worth of the, of the act itself.
there's a man by the name of Paul Farmer. If you know who he is, he's a, a doctor who started working in Haiti. There's a book about his work called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And um, he would walk for half a day or longer through the mountains of Haiti to go visit one or two families to check on them. And the people that he worked with would criticize him and say, how can you spend so much time walking to just go visit one or two families? You know, we'll never get to actually help enough people this way if you do this. It's not efficient. It's a waste of time. And so this is what he writes. He says, this is someone actually writing about him. They say, he's still going to make these hikes. He'd insist. Because if you say that seven hours is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. And then Paul Farmer writes, how about if I say I have fought for my whole life a long defeat? How about if I said that's all it adds up to is a defeat? I have fought the long defeat and brought other people on to fight the long defeat. And I'm not going to stop just because we keep losing. Now I actually think sometimes we may win. I don't dislike victory. You know, people from our background, speaking of people in the West, we're used to in the global north, we're used to being on the victory team. And actually what we're really trying to do with this organization is to make common cause with the losers. Those are two very different things. We want to be on the winning team, but if that comes at the risk of turning our backs on the losers, then no, it's not worth it. So you fight the long defeat. So you founded an organization Um, together with, uh, I think it was his wife, uh, called Partners in Health. That does amazing work in the third world, bringing health care to desolate communities. And 98 or 99 percent of the donations go directly to providing um, medical clinics and care for mothers and children um, in uh, several areas in the third world, Haiti, Africa, Sierra Leone, many different places. So the, the question that came up this morning around you know, the overwhelming challenges that we're facing today, whether it's, whether it's globally in terms of environmental destruction or the uh, insanity of the political situation, not just in the United States, but around the world in terms of the polarization and the lack of dialogue and the rise of um, intense nationalism and outright racism can be very daunting, paralyzing. So we need this, this quality of equanimity together with compassion. Equanimity and compassion go hand in hand. Compassion without equanimity burns out, gets overwhelmed, falls into sorrow. Equanimity without compassion doesn't act, doesn't respond. It just stays in that state of balance. The heart is imbued with this quality of care and connectedness. 
that is moved to alleviate suffering, to respond. I think it takes a lot of courage to be willing to face not not just what's happening, but the, the feelings it brings up. The fear and the helplessness, the hopelessness, the despair. This is what equanimity is for, to develop the resilience and the space to actually be with the intensity of those feelings. To learn to include them rather than to turn away from them because they're too much. When we turn away from them, that's when we shut down and our capacity to respond and to help withers. And we don't know, you know, we don't know the outcome. And for myself, you know, I don't know how to be with it. And that's okay. I think it's I think it's false to pretend that any that we have the answers. But the, that willingness to encounter the unknown, that willingness to say, "I won't fall back asleep," you know, I won't shut down. I'm going to find others to uh, to wake up with together. Equanimity gives us the courage to, to meet the unknown, to say that there's space in my heart for this, to include this, to open to this without knowing even how to be with it. And then in that process, we can discern, you know, what's my role? What's, what's my bit that I can move forward? It's been very moving to meet some of you I went out to dinner with some of the folks on the board and just hearing about the beautiful service work that people do. Helping others. Uh, One person I was talking to in your sangha who's deeply devoted to prison reform. Others traveling to parts of the world to do volunteer medical service work. Or just even here in this community. We We can't do it all. But we can do something. So to just find out, what's that piece that I can do? What's that piece that I can move forward? What's a wise response for me in my life? And then bringing equanimity to the process, understanding understanding the limits of our control, focusing on what we can, the quality of the intention, and the skillfulness of the execution. There's an activist from India by the name of uh, Vandana Shiva, who's, um, I think she's a physicist by training, a scientist of some kind. And uh, she speaks all over the world now. She's she's an organizer in India working with poor farmers uh, for seed, seed rights. Large agribusiness corporations like Monsanto are patenting seeds 
so that uh, local farmers couldn't save their seeds to continue growing their crops. Uh, and so she has been very active there and speaks all over the world now around issues of um, environmental justice and uh, social activism. And um, somebody asked her in an interview uh, how she has so much energy, how she keeps going. And I want to I read you her response. It's a little bit long, but it's quite remarkable. The interviewer asked, What's, what keeps you so alive? How do you keep going? She says, well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged, but this much I do know. I don't allow myself to become overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn instead to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I have learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because these are not in my hands. So she's referring there to the core teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a classical uh, text of what we would today call Hinduism uh, that shares with Buddhism this this very similar understanding of uh, action without attachment to the results, that the action... Uh, be based on the quality of the intention in the action itself rather than focusing on the results. So I've learned from the Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because these are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but the commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think that getting that freedom is a social duty. And I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescriptions and demands. I think that what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. It's profound, huh? No, you can take a picture of it after. It's from, an, it's from an interview that I transcribed. Her name is Vandana Shiva. V-A-N-D-A-N-A. Shiva, S-H-I-V-A. Or you're welcome to email me through my website, and I could email it to you as well. Yeah. So folks like this, like Merton and Paul Farmer and Vandana Shiva... I think they're embodying this potential that we have as human beings for equanimity and compassion, for the heart to be fully open, attuned, connected to life, without being crippled, without being frozen or paralyzed, because there's a deep understanding 
of what is within our control and what is outside of our control. And that the focus of attention becomes on the quality of the heart and the skillfulness of the action rather than the results. And then we just keep doing all that we can do in this moment. And then that becomes energizing in itself. And I think there is hope. There's a woman by the name of Erica Chenworth um, who has a book called Why Civil Resistance Works. She has a wonderful TED Talk that you can watch on, uh, on, on YouTube or on, uh, the, I'm not sure if it's a TED or TEDx talk. but um, So she did some research on all of the various campaigns, violent and nonviolent, over a more than a 100-year period, from 1900 to 2006. She writes, though it defies consensus, between 1900 and 2006, campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts in terms of bringing about social change. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And I, my understanding at the heart of nonviolence is this capacity for equanimity. You know, in the civil rights movements, many of you probably are aware of this, but a lot of folks in our country are unaware of the fact that uh, those who engaged in the marches and the boycotts and the sit-ins uh, underwent intensive training. They did role plays. Uh, to practice non-reactivity, to practice living non-violence, to not respond with anger and hatred outwardly, to maintain that that space of equanimity in the face of, of great oppression and suffering. None of us knows how we would respond, you know, in those situations with physical threat against our body that we can practice, we can train, we can train the mind and the heart to deepen in this capacity to stay in touch with the truth of things, to keep the heart open. So we've explored over the course of this weekend a lot of different facets of equanimity and different ways to, um, to cultivate it from reflecting on the changing conditions of our lives, the vicissitudes of change, of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, and reflecting with wisdom when these conditions come and go, to see it clearly, oh, that's what this is. This is one of those changing conditions. It's temporary fragile, subject to change, so that the mind does not become attracted or repelled, so it does not become obsessed with something that is transient, temporary, and uncertain. We explored the, uh, our kind of biological hardwiring to experience pleasure and pain on a sensory level and on a mental and emotional level and how reactivity arises right there at the point of contact. And that we can bring our awareness just there 
to that place where the object of awareness touches the mind, where there's pleasure or pain or neutrality, and to practice with the arising of liking and disliking or greed or aversion right there where it touches, to hold the mind at that place and allow equanimity to grow, being with the resistance and the suffering that comes, uh, understanding that friction as feedback. The heart is telling me, let go. This is holding on as painful, resisting, manipulating, controlling, tires the heart. Allowing, letting things be is peaceful. And then today we explored the application of of this understanding not only of change, of everything changing, but the understanding of cause and effect, of, of, of kama vipaka, that our actions have effects and that this is a, that it's lawful as a way of relating to the relationships and events of our life, to see each person, each life as, a, as kind of a trajectory of unfolding that's, that's determined in part by our choices. And that when we, when we remember this, when we can bear this understanding in mind, it creates more space to allow one another to live our lives without trying to control each other. And of course, this doesn't mean that we don't respond or take action if someone is causing harm, that we say, oh, it's their karma, you know, they'll inherit the results of that. No, you know, if someone is causing harm, we, we intercede based on our own values, based on our own commitments to compassion and safety and valuing life. So I want to offer just a few closing reflections on how we can continue to cultivate equanimity in our day-to-day life. And then we'll take the time we have remaining for uh, questions and discussion. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is that equanimity... Um, is our equanimity is tested and grows when things get hard. It's really easy to be calm and peaceful and balanced when everything's going our way. There's a a Tibetan saying that my friend and colleague Donald Rothberg likes to quote, that uh, when the sun is shining and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. But when things, but when difficulties arise, when I am tested, is, is when I learn the, the true state of my heart. So it's easy to be equanimous, you know, when the weather's beautiful and we've had enough to eat and there's money in the bank and all of that. So when things get challenging, when they're hard, when we come home and somebody says something to test us or to poke at us, that's where equanimity grows. That's the opportunity to practice. And to remember that this uh, capacity for balance is only ever one moment away. It's not far. We get caught up, we react, we forget. 
awareness returns. In that moment of return, can we come back to balance? So some practical ways to cultivate equanimity. Uh, One is to notice when it's present. There's a fair amount of even-mindedness that we actually experience from day to day. When the mind is balanced, when it's not particularly pushed or pulled around by experience, trying to control or manipulate things, but a lot of the time we overlook it. We don't notice the presence of equanimity. Or we don't notice the the neutral zones of our life, the times when there's not much happening. Maybe it's a little bit boring. Everything is just kind of ho-hum. We seek out the intensity of pleasure or pain. But those times of neutrality are times that equanimity can grow, where the mind can begin to appreciate the peacefulness, the quietness of balance, of non-agitation. So one way of cultivating equanimity is noticing when it's present and paying more attention to the quiet times, the in-between times. Uh, trying to notice any background evenness or steadiness or composure in our life. Even in our meditation, it's kind of remarkable. I, you know, teach retreats and people will come and ask questions and they'll say, so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting and the mind is pretty quiet. There's not a lot of thoughts. The body feels okay. There's not a lot of pain. The mind is relatively clear. It's pretty calm. There must be something wrong. What am I, right? What am I doing wrong? I'm not struggling at all. <laughs> so we're so used to struggling, to dealing with some problem, or you know, putting out some fire, or having to grapple with some difficulty, that when everything actually settles and becomes peaceful and calm and quiet, we don't know how to be with it and just enjoy it and soak it in. So in our meditation, rather than looking for problems or disturbance or always going to the thing that we're trying to work on, to notice and enjoy the moments of quiet or peacefulness or balance that may be present. This, too, is a way to strengthen and deepen equanimity. We've talked a little bit about uh, the company we keep in life, recognizing that the people we spend time with uh, leave an impression. They have an effect on us. And so whenever possible to make wise choices about the friends that we have and the people we spend time with. Choosing to spend time with people who have a level of wisdom and balance and equanimity. So sometimes we learn equanimity just by being around somebody who's more equanimous. And recognizing in a certain situation, seeing how they respond and realizing, oh, look at that. I didn't even realize that was possible. I probably would have, you know, would have snapped or would have blown up. And look at that. They just... Let it roll off them. And then we we pick up on that and go, oh, I could probably do that. It doesn't seem so hard. 
developing a, a balanced attitude towards the uh, people or pets and animals that we love in our life, practicing equanimity the way we did this morning, and, and watching out for how attached we become. Attached, not in the sense of healthy bonding, psychological attachment, but attached in the sense of trying to control one another. Instead, seeing if we can have a balanced attitude, allowing one another to live our lives. Developing equanimity towards not only the people and uh, other living beings in our lives, but developing equanimity towards the material objects in our life. Not becoming obsessed with the latest gadget or movie or article of clothing or automobile, recognizing that these two are subject to change. You know, another two years that, you know, cell phone or smartwatch, it's going to be old news. It's not going to have the same glitter and glow and enticement to it. So having that, having that perspective that recognizes the way we get so fixated and charged up and agitated by things. Most of it's not really that necessary or helpful. You know, being able to take care of our material possessions uh, out of a, out of a sense of, of stewardship, but without without the uh, the fixation or obsessiveness. So similarly, another way to develop equanimity in day to day life, and uh, this uh, this suggestion on one of the handouts you have, which you don't need to look at now, but later there's some instructions for this. Um, to take the day-to-day activities that we engage in and to focus our attention on applying our energy and effort evenly from the beginning through the middle to the end of the activity rather than the way we usually approach tasks, which is to try to get it done as quickly as possible and get to the end so we can move on to the next thing. So equanimity has that sense of balance and evenness. So for washing the dishes, great example. You know, so just take the time and be with the process of washing the dishes instead of trying to get it done as quickly as possible. So that sense of balance and evenness can begin to imbue uh, the very process of our living the activities of our life, and just taking discrete activities, often physical, repetitive activities like folding the laundry or doing yard work, those tend to be the getting dressed, brushing your teeth, those tend to be the easiest to develop this way of being because the mind doesn't need to be as active. And then that can start to carry over into conversation or meetings or more complicated tasks. And then when things don't go our way, 
when we meet with conditions or results that we don't enjoy, to use that to practice equanimity, to step back and get perspective, to remember impermanence, to remember to see things as they are, changing series of conditions of up and down, gain and loss. Look for the feeling tone. Look for the hidden, it's called the hidden object, that sense of pleasant or unpleasant that the mind is reacting to. Look and see, where is the mind getting stuck? Where am I clinging? Where is there pleasure or pain that I'm either getting attracted to or resisting? And then to engage in an embodied exploration of that relationship to experience, of the sense of resistance or control, finding balance within that. Noticing how the mind fixates on the way we want things to be. Experiencing the tension of that, the struggle of that. And noticing any amount of ease that comes when there's a little bit of release, a little bit of letting go. And just studying that pattern of of contraction and release, contraction and release. So that the mind begins to, to learn how to be with that whole range of relating to experience. Remembering that equanimity doesn't mean not feeling. It doesn't mean not reacting. It means having the space to be with all of it, to learn from all of it. And always coming back to the perspective, always coming back to the wise perspective. All that has the nature to arise will pass away. All beings are the owners of their actions. And therefore, we can place our energy and our intention on our actions in this moment, on the the quality of intention in the heart and the, the skillfulness of what we do as a way of meeting life and doing the best we can with the resources we have to, to contribute, to help. So I'll pause here. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.